Hello and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe. And we have an email for you. We're, we're going to stick to one this time. Mm. It was in connection with the study or the research we talked about on fasting, how uh, restricting your caloric intake for a period of hours, usually it's 8 to 24 hours, generally a good thing, but as you age... Doesn't work as well. Doesn't work as well because your body can't switch back over into that healthy feeding mode and you get stuck and your muscles waste away. It's just, it, it can be unhealthy for you mm. and you should talk to a doctor about it. We got an email from, we refer to him as our, our poet. Yeah. Phil. Yeah. Phil the poet. He sent us. Every time he writes to us, I remember that poem he wrote to us. Because we took that poem and, convert, and, and sang it. Yeah. Remember my children playing in the unknown salt marsh many years ago. Grateful that the toilet and the faucet make no strange sounds. No, 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 no more strange sounds. We made a song out of it. It was a good poem, without even, even without the song. No, it was beautiful really yeah. legitimately beautiful he wrote thanks for a great episode about the dangers and benefits of fasting you guys gave good advice 10 years ago i lost 30 pounds in four months at age 62 dropping from 179 to 149 pounds because i was harvesting firewood all alone all winter without eating enough to sustain the workload my doctor said i was eating around 3,000 calories per day but needed 5,000 to fuel the work. It has taken 10 years to gain back muscle mass lost in one difficult winter. Although I will never be as strong as before this period of accidental fasting, I'm 170 pounds now and in fairly good shape at 72, happily eating five meals per day. <laughs> All the best, your friend, Phil. I'm wondering how many trees he took down, how much wood, because harvesting firewood for three months straight, you're going to come up with... Quite a few, quite a few pieces of wood. I have a very romantic idea of what that looks like all day long, chopping wood. But yeah, if you're burning 5,000 calories a day, you're doing really hard work. Wow. Incredibly hard work. I remember reading about Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps no, it's... burning 10,000 per day, but that was an extreme exercise regimen plus cold water. That is, that, that's the kind of work that will injure your back. I'm hoping that despite the the muscle loss, that your back was okay, Phil. True, true, yeah. So just a reminder, make sure, especially as you age, mm -hmm. that your caloric intake mass, uh, matches the, the output or what you're burning. Yeah, a couple, uh, couple shorties out of Australia studies here. Um, just under half of Australian workers would be willing to sacrifice part of their salary to be able to work from home. It's according to a survey conducted at the University of South Australia. The questionnaire filled out by 1,100 Aussies found that 45% of workers down under would be willing to give up the equivalent of 6,000 U.S. dollars in annual wages. A fifth of the people asked said that they would give up $24,000 or 30% of their salary for being able to work from home. Uh, okay, keep going. Yeah. According to the study, female workers were 30% more likely to forego salary than their male counterparts. Also, workers between the ages of 30 and 50 were more likely to give up cash compared to other age groups. Of all the groups surveyed, it was couples with children who were prepared to sacrifice the most of their salaries. The researchers said that the COVID-19 pandemic was the driving force behind a revolution in Australians working from home. In 2016... 
Around 5% of workers were doing their jobs remotely on Census Day in 2021, so five years later. That figure rose to 21%. 5% to 21? From five all the way up to quadruple. Four, four times the number of people. The lead authors say that their study is the latest indication that the trend will continue. Quote, positive effects on well-being, work-life balance, health, as well as greater flexibility and personal freedom. Finally, lower costs and higher convenience will keep people doing their jobs at home in Australia as well as around the world. I was just going to say, this is not an Australian phenomenon. This is a a worldwide ongoing debate. And 30%? They're willing to forego 30% of their salary in order to work yeah, from see, home? See, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not too thrilled with this research, to be honest. It's the first I'm hearing of it, and I don't really like it because it's, this is, a, this is a, a, a labor struggle that is happening right now in real time. It's the big debate. Yeah. Companies around the world, institutions around the world are requesting that their employees come back into the office. The employees don't want to come back. They're saving time, resources, uh, they're staying healthier by working right. from it's, home. It's way better for their health, physical and right. mental health. And of course, everyone's different on whether they like working from home or not, but a lot of people do. What this quantifies is how much companies can bargain with employees to allow them to stay home. You see what I'm saying? Right now, mm-hmm. it's kind of like the salary for the position is the salary, whether you're at home or at work. And this indicates a future where you apply for a job and they say, well, it, you know, the office version is is worth this much if you come to the office with us. And if you want to work from home, you can do that for 20% less salary. Yeah, well, one would hope that it, it, it comes down to productivity, what you actually do, the work you do, not the time you spend either in the office or at home, right? Right. That's what it should be about. But well, it seems here, ultimately, hopefully the productivity doesn't isn't the same, just... Yeah. yeah. Studies were, I mean, studies where you're asking people how much money are you willing to fo- forego for X. Sometimes it's interesting to look at who's funding that research and why. The way, the way I understood it, it's simply the University, University of South Australia, but uh, I should look into that. <laughs> yeah. the, the next one here is also from Australia. Uh, eating nuts may help men enhance the quality of their sperm, according to an analysis led by Monash University in this Melbourne. Is, this is, uh, you, you mentioned this headline to me, that's all I know, but that's, that's just... Hold on, hold on. The team was searching far and wide for any studies on how nuts influence sperm and came across two randomized clinical trials looking at 223 healthy males aged 18 to 35. Mm -hmm. In the first trial, they ate 75 grams of whole-shelled English walnuts every day for 12 weeks when compared to a control group that ate a similar diet, just without the nuts. The nut-eating group had higher sperm motility and better morphology. So more moving around Mm -hmm. and better shape and size, Mm -hmm. less abnormal or messed up sperm. The second group ate 30 grams of walnuts, 15 grams of almonds, and 15 grams of hazelnuts every day for 14 weeks. Same results. The nut eaters had better sperm with regard to motility and morphology. In both groups, there was no difference with regard to how much. So sperm counts were the same, just big differences in motility and morphology. The study authors said both groups, they they had they were eating the same diet, mm-hmm. Western-style diets, which... Funnily enough, the research is referred to as not exactly healthy. All right, but the, yeah, the important yeah. part is that they were both eating the same thing. Just one group was eating two handfuls of nuts more each day. And 
it was controlled for any other factors, any other lifestyle factors that could have contributed to it. Right. So the, the assumption... Thus, they were able to conclu- conclude that if you eat nuts, two handfuls of nuts every day, and make no other changes, it could have this impact on your fertility if, if you're looking for that. And the assumption has to be that the extra caloric intake or fat intake is... Um, it's not that they're eating all those nuts in addition to all the other food that they're eating. They're probably reducing other foods from their Western diet and replacing it with healthier fats, healthier. I would assume so. But, um, but what what they said is that it it's about the omega-3 polyunsaturated fats and the natural minerals and vitamins and something called polyphenols mm-hmm. that are in these nuts, hazelnuts, walnuts, and almonds that could have an effect on reproductive health. They don't know exactly why. But that was those were the, the three different kinds of nutrients inside of nuts that that in their mind could mm-hmm. could lead to this. Interesting. And I'm just going to assume that they and this could have looked be, at could, sperm quality months down the line because it takes months for yeah. So 12 weeks after they stopped, so during and after, and it the the changes re- remained the same. Hmm. So yeah, if this is the answer. Just eating a couple of handfuls of almonds. Well, yeah. The, the, again, the caveat: who who finance that? Sometimes, whenever it's about food or uh, these studies, um, coffee does X, Y, or Z for you, and it's usually positive. Or, or, or drink one glass of red wine per day, and um, you'll be the healthiest ever. I always wonder who's funded by Dionysus. Yeah, the, you've got to you've got to look and assuming that these were studies done for the right reasons, then it's something for people to consider who are looking to have children, basically. I mean, I'm out of that game. I think you're out of that game. I, th- this would make me want to never eat a nut ever again. <laughs> well, or yeah, just eat them for other reasons because they taste good. But anyway, I'm going to talk about um, a health study real quickly with the gigantic caveat. It's basically two studies in one, 12 people involved in each one. Mm-hmm. Wow, 12, very small. Very small sample size. 12 in the first study, 12 in the second. Yeah. A total of five women, and they were only in the first study. So it's a mostly male study. These are people who are about university age, so keep that all in mind. Mm-hmm. And what they did in these two studies is they wanted to see, look, if people are sleep deprived, yeah. is there any can can you can you make their tired brains function better with coffee? If you could, yeah. Is there a health? Is there a health? I mean, it's not <laughs> necessarily stimulants. unhealthy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are lots of ways to do it. One way to do it, or to consider doing it, is exercise. Twenty minutes of okay. exercise. In this case, in the case of these two studies, stationary bike. And in and one group did it, the other group didn't? Or how'd they do this? It was interesting because it's such a small sample size. I thought there's no way you have six doing it and six not doing it okay. as a control. And they used the participants in the experiment as their own control. So one time they came in sleep deprived yeah. and took these tests yeah. before and after hopping on the stationary bike. Mm-hmm. Another time they came in beautifully rested and, and did the same thing. So the people were their own control. Okay, so they, they, they looked at the effect when you're sleep deprived that exercise has on you. Right, compared, compared to when, when you, you are not sleep deprived, and then and then you hop on the exercise okay. bike. All right, yeah. And what was interesting is if a couple of different graphs, um, but when they were not sleep deprived, and this was having more than se- seven hours of sleep, a normal night's sleep, there wasn't. That was a surprise for me. There wasn't much of an of a jump in your cognitive ability to do these tests. They were math tests, or you're pairing symbols together, or you're reacting to things left hand, right hand. The exercise didn't help that much. If you're sleep deprived, and they defined it there as you basically had to go to bed after 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. and wake up before 7 a.m. Okay, five hours. Yeah, a lot of lot of video gamers will understand that that sleep concept. Well, there are all kinds of reasons <laughs> to stay up that late. <laughs> um, you 
then the cognitive improvement was pretty significant. I'm not going to go through each of the five tests because the measurement was how many of the tasks could they accomplish within the allotted time in minutes. Mm -hmm. And so it was, a, it was a flat number. Did it jump from 20 to 25 or 40 to, to 50? But in just about every category, the number goes up. If you've, if you've done, in both groups? Or only if you... Really, mostly for the sleep-deprived group. Okay. That was the one that was far more, much more dramatic. Got it. And so that's the big takeaway from, from this. If you, if you want, let's say you've had a bad night's sleep yeah. and you have some test the following morning, this would be really relevant to the students out there who have to take tests, and you've got this tired, foggy brain. We know that right feeling. Right before the tests go for a run? or uh, 20 minutes of, in this case, it was a stationary bicycle, but something equivalent that you should see a boost. Now, I think the way they did the study, it was mostly based in England, but in connection with, with Japan, they had to take the test, I believe, right after or, or even during the exercise. Okay. And so it's it's not something you can replicate if you're going to a university and you're not going to be jogging in place. You could you could run in place. Yeah, you could try it. Um, and they just one the one part about the second study. The first study was partial sleep deprivation. The other one was total for one night. Mm -hmm. So partial sleep deprivation that was three nights straight. Mm -hmm. For total sleep depri deprivation, um, big drop. Right, people are not doing well on these tests. And again, it goes up significantly if they exercise. So if you've pulled an all-nighter all for, for any reason, then go ahead and exercise very quickly before the test. And that's that's one way. I mean, you mentioned coffee. There are other ways to get yourself back back ready for this. Yeah. But but exercise is really good. I'll, really I'll just, helpful. I'll, yeah, I'll just give you, for anyone wanting to look into the study, it's called The Effects of Sleep Deprivation, Acute Hypoxia, and Exercise on Cognitive Performance, a Multi-Experiment Combined Stressors Study in the Journal of Physiology and Behavior. That hypoxia means a lack of oxygen. They also threw mm -hmm. that into the equation. It's not really worth mentioning, though. More important is that if you've had bad sleep, a quick jolt of exercise will get your brain fitter. For how long, I don't know. No, that, that's huge. I, that, many times in my life, that, that would have helped me. Sticking with scores on cognitive tests, um, having a sibling is bad news for your cognitive development. What? But only if you are the first or second born in your family. Oh, so if it's a huge family, you're, you're used to the idea of more. Hold on, hold on. Re researchers at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, were unhappy with the methodology of previous work on siblings which they said was constrained by limited observation spans. So they looked at 30 years of longitudinal data to see what happens to children when they gain a sister or brother. Do they perform better or worse on cognitive assessment tests? The UCLA analysis shows that sibling additions are only important to first and second born children's cognitive development. For third born and later, there is no effect on cognitive development. Also, for those first and second born children, the effect on cognitive development gets smaller with each addition to the family. The scientists were also looking into effects on socio-behavioral development and concluded that having an older sibling is beneficial, but gaining a younger sibling increases behavioral problems. I'm just trying to think this through. So the, it's so if child you number are, two. Child number two is at the expense of child number one. Yes. Cognitively. And child number three is also at the expense of, of child, child number, number two. two. Child number four is not at all at the expense of child number three. Child number three is And at a way totally lower to expense this. to child number two and even lower expense to child number one. Hmm. They were the, – the data – there have been tests and experiments done and studies done on this, but only looking at 
like they said, limited observation spans, so only a couple of years, almost like cross-sectional studies. They were looking at data from 1979 onwards and checking you, using performances on cognitive tests what happens to these kids when they get a sibling, a second sibling, a third sibling, a fourth sibling, a fifth sibling. So there you got it. Yeah. So I guess with that in mind, I would just like to apologize to my older sister. Meg, I'm, I'm sorry that I made you not as smart as you could have been. You seem smart, but I guess you had more potential than I took it away from you. Although maybe just, sorry, maybe to make myself feel better, if instead of me, a dog had come along that took away their attention or longer work hours or other things upsetting, you know, the normal scene. Right, I mean, how about the, the real takeaway here is just have a gigantic family. You what, know? Wait, what, like, like, because after like number three, years ago? four, five, six, seven, have 10, 15 kids. You have, you won't have an, an effect on their cognitive abilities. You have completely. Cognitive abilities and their socio. Uh, their social behavior will be better because you'll have like 14 different older siblings to help you deal with the, your problems. Are we starting a new religion right now or a, a science unscripted? <laughs> we're growing our user base, our fan base, our listeners by encouraging them to have 15 children at a time. No, interesting research, Gabe. What is that? Because it's a, it's a huge long one um, with lots of data points. Yeah, it's gigantic. If you want to look at it yourself, it's called the effects of siblings on cognitive and socio-behavioral development put together by four researchers at mm -hmm. the University of California, Los Angeles. Anything you want to say to your younger brother, Gabe? I have an older brother oh, and I would older, just like to thank him for the help that he's given me socio-behaviorally <laughs> over the years. He's, he's been great. I love him more than anything else on earth. Pretty much. And do you know anyone who toots their own horn? Oh, those those horn tooters? Yeah, those horn tooters out there, and they and they annoy you. And, and you and you might even think they're that's happening more and more these days. It's even happening in science. It is, yeah. It's an epidemic of positive self congratulatory emotional emotional language uh, that is is permeating the world we live in, and with consequences. Most of us can't even really imagine. We're going to head to Austria now to speak with a guy named Guillaume about a study on studies. Science Unscripted. So, hi guys. Uh, my name is Guillaume Wood. I'm a neuropsychologist. I'm the leader of a, a research group at the University of Graz. We are interested, among other things, on uh, rigor in science. And so good practice uh, for science communication. We just published an article on uh, exactly that. And that article was in how scientists describe their work, what the language that they use in the, in, in the beginning, the abstracts of their studies? Precisely. What we reported in our study is an increase in the use of uh, emotional words, which are not really necessary for the understanding of the, the contents of the study. So they are more evaluative. 
but you add them anyway because they increase the amount of attention you get of people. So, so what's going on? It, it, like what like words? If, yeah, what words? If if I'm if I've done a study that involved uh, testing a new drug on mice, am I gonna in the abstract? I'm gonna be like, wow, awesome! I am exquisitely thrilled to to show the, these fascinating results. What what what's happening? Can you give us examples of what they're doing? Yes, uh, excellent, greater, better, improved, uh, helped, importance, novel, promise, progress, optimal. So, forty uh, years ago. Uh, you would have six out of ten abstracts completely free from this vocabulary, and nowadays uh, only two out of ten are completely free from this vocabulary. Okay, so let let me just make sure I understand this. Um, Forty or forty-two years ago, um, four out of ten or two out of five abstracts would have had this kind of language in it, and now we're yes. and now we're up to four out of five have it. So you've you've doubled the amount of abstracts that have it. Why? There are many probable reasons. Positively connotated words catch your attention better. And they also uh, have an effect on uh, the way you appreciate the text you are reading. When you are in an emotionally positive context, which is generated by these words, you tend to agree that everything is important. So you are adding false positives, seeing patterns where there is nothing. Similar phenomenon is uh, occurring in the whole internet content. The frequency of uh, positive emotion words is increasing everywhere, but at a specific price, because uh, you are turning off your critical reasoning when you uh, are becoming more positively. Uh, elated, but doesn't this just show the the, the human side uh, of these researchers? I mean, scientists are they're they're people too. I mean, or is it? Do you really see it as such a problem? Definitely, the problem is because uh, so many people who otherwise would not be interested in a specific study because it's not interesting for them would apparently uh, find these studies uh, more interesting. And then we proliferate uh, wrong citations. And with this strategy, we may uh, make this problem more severe. The listeners of this show, I think part of the reason they come to it is, is to get you know, good, good science information that has been reviewed critically and uh, that doesn't hopefully contain all of, the, of these exaggerations and these, this flourishing language. What can our listeners do to make sure that they actually get good scientific informa- information, that it's, not, that it's not lost as a result of, the, of all this fluffy language? Is there anything they can do? This is a very good question. So for the normal reader, it may be uh, quite hard to distinguish between a good study and, and a bad study. This is really hard. Uh, I couldn't tell uh, of uh, any way for uh, the non-specialist to protect uh, against uh, uh, this kind of mistake. And what would you tell <clears throat> one of those young scientists out there who, who in, in his or her desperation to, to get published or to get a job or to keep their job and, and use these terms? What would, you, what would you tell that scientist? How would you advise that person not to use this language? You should still uh, communicate uh, as clearly as you can. And uh, this is also... Uh, uh, one way to, to increase uh, your readership, so to communicate in a clear way. 
but uh, this not necessarily involves uh, using uh, as many qualifiers as you can. And this can also be, be, be learned. It's also a, a, an extremely valuable ability, so to express yourself uh, clearly, so to uh, convince other people of uh, uh, the value of your, your results, the power of the evidence and the power of your design, not through more superficial artifice. Can you give us and all of our listeners out there three words to watch out for? Let's say they're Guillaume's least favorite words that pop up in abstracts of studies because our listeners, I know this from the emails, when we talk about studies, they go and they find those studies, they read the whole thing and then they email us about them. And they're like, oh, an interesting aspect that you, that you failed to talk about yeah. was XYZ. They read them. What are the three words that you want them to watch out for to identify when this is happening? All right. So my, my feelings about these words come from the psychological literature. So perhaps they are not so frequent in other branches of science. I would say important, novel, and uh, significant significantly. Important, novel, significant, significantly. I'm going to be watching out for those three words in every study I read. Thanks, Guillaume. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right, cool. And that was Guillaume Wood talking to us there from Graz in Austria, which he described as having what typical weather right now. It was it's freezing. Mm -hmm. and he said he didn't know what temper what temperature it was because he doesn't walk barefoot. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> I love that. No, um, lots of things to think about here. What's strange is the one lesson, which is completely the wrong lesson to take away from this, is that you can apparently confuse other people hmm. and limit their ability to think critically about the information you're communicating to them if you just pepper that written communication with positive, or not positive. What is this, flattery F with positive imagery? About your own work or about Oh, about yourself? your own work. Okay, yeah. Right? That's what an abstract is doing. And it, right. and it, but also, I'm, I'm thinking of emails here. Yeah. Or even the people listening right now. Is, is there a difference if, if Gabe and I talk about the fact how this important and, if I'm honest, novel interview, yeah. which was significant. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, what I'm doing here, I, I, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm putting drugs in your brain that, that eliminate your ability to figure out the facts, to take the facts away from them. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, I don't have to do this very often in my, in my day-to-day affairs. I don't, I don't find myself ever having to describe my own work, which I'm thankful for because I don't like doing it. I, I, I'm thinking back to the time when last time I even wrote a, a cover letter for a job interview. It's, it's hard to describe yourself. Right. But now we've learned from Guillaume Wood that when you do... Use words that will not only flatter the person reading, but also um, uh, balloon your work up to such absurd, absurd heights yeah, that yeah. they're almost drugged. I, I, I'm not sure Guillermo would, be, would listen to this and say, I'm really happy that that's what we've learned, all of us. <laughs> I think what he would say, based on that conversation, is to, to be aware of it on the other end of things. Yeah. Either when you're consuming, first and foremost, those scientific studies, but when you get an email or see marketing information or there's an advertisement and you start seeing all of this fluffy language all around it, just know that you're being drugged 
to some extent so that you've, you, you lose the ability to actually understand what's, what's happening and what is being told to you. The wool is being pulled over your eyes, isn't that the, the term? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and also that this is happening more and more and more even in scientific journals, the writing that should be objective. It's even happening there. So it's completely permeated our world. Well, and that we should object our, to it. Yeah. We have a right. In fact, I, he didn't say that, but one thought I had is if I see this, any of those three words, I would be tempted. I will be tempted if I have a minute to write the journal that published this work and say, here's, that a, out. here's a link yeah. to science showing why you shouldn't have that in there. Please pass this along to your editors. That's one way to approach this in the future. Yeah. And we, we after the recording stuff, we asked him, well, if I do have a, a study that is novel or that has never been done before, how do I, how should I say it? And he said, don't. You don't have to say that. Let your study speak for itself. Don't tell anyone had, that it's never a, been done before. He, yeah, he had a great example. If if you, if he introduces a molecule that reduces the size of a tumor, that's all he has to say. It may be novel. It could have never happened before. But the fact is he introduced a molecule and it reduced the size of a tumor. You don't need all of this fluffy language. Yeah. What do you guys think yeah. about this significant show? Let us know at DW, <laughs> or you at DW.com. I sit unzipped on an outhouse throne In a forest full of wild flowers Listen early morning bird song And the distant radio traffic from science unscripted Remember my children playing In the unknown salt marsh Many years ago Grateful that the toilet and the faucet Make no strange sounds DW Made for Minds